Sometimes when I slow down and reflect on uh, my long retreat experiences, like the experience that you're having here on this retreat, it can sometimes feel like the most important thing that has arisen from all of that time on long retreat is, is just the chance, just the chance to fall in love with this path and this practice. Just this opportunity to do that, to, to fall in love with what we're doing here. And then to have the opportunity for more long retreats to, to deepen that love I have for the Dhamma. Maybe this is what it's all about, just that. Because I know when I'm, uh, when I feel like I'm fully rooted in my deep love for this path and practice, it doesn't matter what's going on on retreat. It really doesn't. It doesn't matter if I'm lost in thought all day or getting knocked around by strong emotions or if it's some deep experience of samadhi and quietness and stillness and stability or if the path is feeling smooth or bumpy, or if it's pleasant or unpleasant, or if it's difficult or easy. It really doesn't matter, because at those times, I'm in it, right? I'm, I'm deeply in it. I'm, I'm in love. You know what it's like to be in love. Kind of has that feeling, right? doesn't matter what happens. And maybe some of you can relate to this also in terms of practice. And when I'm there, it, it, it does such a great job of counteracting kind of my mind's attempt sometimes. Like it's, it gets into this loop of wanting to extract something, hopefully extract something from all this time on retreat. Like it's, it's secretly my mind and often desperately grasping for that hope of healing or transformation or some big transformative experience, a.k.a. grasping, craving. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. And this is a tricky arena because I'm going to point out later that the thing that fuels my love is actually quite close to grasping and craving, but also really different. And there's another aspect of this love that I, uh, what comes to mind is, is kind of a, a depiction of it in, in sculpture in the early centuries of the common era, kind of the, between the first and fourth centuries uh, in the common era in, in what's called Gandhara, ancient Gandhara, which uh, uh, is in current day Pakistan and, and eastern Afghanistan. These sculptors created these, I find, stunning stone carvings. And, and some of them were 
these visual depictions of the Buddha leaving the palace. That act, that act of leaving his home to set set out on his spiritual journey. And in one, you can see the Buddha being carried along by these devas. And in another, it's, uh, he's surrounded by these supportive celestial guardians of the Dhamma. And it can feel like that. Again, you might have that sense. You know, when, when my love is strong, it feels like I'm being protected in some way like that I'm being carried along on the path, that I'm being supported. So maybe this is the biggest gift that you can give to yourself. And I'd say, and to the world through this retreat to simply fall in love with what we're doing here. And then allow yourself to be carried along by that love. So tonight I want to play with that that as, as, as having that as the basis. Proposing that. And if that's the proposition, then the, I think the important question is what is needed to fall in love? What's needed to deeply fall in love with this path and practice? It's the common thing that you need to fall in love. Passion. I need passion to fall in love. Because passion is potent. You know the potency of passion, right? And passion is is one of the four bases or four foundations of potency that the Buddha talks about. There's this list, some of you might know, the four idipadas. Idi is uh, sometimes translated as potency or power. There's a power to these four qualities of heart or qualities of mind. And pada is the, it's the foundation, the, the footwork, literally pada, ped, pedestrian the base. And these four bases of potency, they they carry us forward on this path. They carry us forward in terms of samadhi, sometimes talked about in the context of samadhi. But more generally, they, they carry a practitioner forward on this path in practice. They're important, you know, as the, as the, as we find in the connected discourses. The Buddha, he says, practitioners, those who have neglected these four bases for spiritual potency have neglected the noble path leading to awakening. And then oppositely, those who who have undertaken the four bases for spiritual potency have undertaken the noble path leading to awakening. And the first idipada is what I've been sharing about. The Pali word is chanda. You know, this is what I'm translating as, as passion. It's sometimes translated as desire or zeal. So it's this zeal or passion 
or desire for the, the dhammats. It's, you could say it's a particular kind of chanda, dhamma chanda, because there's also kama chanda, which is in some ways the opposite. To make it simple, chanda is this heart quality that gives you the feeling, which I'm sure you felt, or you wouldn't be here on this retreat, of, I really want to practice. It's that sense, and I'm sure you've had moments of that, of like, man, I really want to practice. Not in a constricted, tight way that comes from grasping, but more in an easeful, soft, tender way that's onward leading. So that's the first one, chanda, passion. And then there, uh, the other three are virya, which uh, Tuari touched upon too. Energy, sometimes persistence, the energy to wholeheartedly engage in the path and practice. Again, easefully, softly, and with energy. And then the, the third one in the list is uh, chitta, uh, consciousness. And I, I'm grateful for the uh, Ajahn Sujato, Bhikkhu Sujato, who in the context of practice, just this invitation to keep that one really simple, just to understand it as being aware, being skillfully aware, just being mindful. And then the, the last one is uh, uh, vimangsa or vimangsa, or vimangsa, um, and it's often translated as investigation, or the word that sometimes works for me is, is curiosity, or this being engaged in this process of learning. And one way, I, I think this can be applied to many of the lists, not all of the lists, that, uh, of understanding uh, the functioning of these qualities of heart. One way of understanding them is not so much in a linear causal progression, but rather just as conditions that are supporting each other. And I find this model to be really helpful to understand many of the lists. Sometimes it's helpful to see that they can happen in a sequence, but sometimes it's nice just to see they're the ingredients in the soup that makes, makes the soup happen. And I just need to be sensitive to them. Like the the analogy that works that's, that works for me around this is it's like how a jazz quartet functions. Think of a jazz quartet. It's a John Coltrane jazz quartet. You got a saxophone, you got a piano, you got a bass, and you got a you got the drums. And you could say in a past life, because this is such a long time ago, I used to play in a jazz band. I played the clarinet. It was so much fun. <laughs> I did have a passion for it. (laughs) And uh, what I remember was uh, when I was in uh, this jazz band and I played the clarinet, I could feel like there's the drums. They're supporting me and fueling me to keep uh, in terms of uh, uh, keeping the rhythm. Like I'm listening to that and there's that support of the drums. Or the bass and the piano. I can hear, I can hear the chord progression. I can always come back to hearing where we are in the chord progression. They're supporting me in this way. And with this mixing and mingling, we're supporting each other to make this beautiful music. So it's not like one happens and then another. It's like this music is happening between all four. And the first idipada, chanda, chanda is kind of like John Coltrane. 
in the quartet. <laughs> As the Buddha says about Chanda, it's the, it's, it's the forerunner, it's the harbinger for the arising of the noble eightfold path. It's the forerunner. Like John Coltrane. Like there's a good reason why there's that church in San Francisco, the, the St. John Coltrane Church. <laughs> he was the forerunner in so many ways in jazz. So most of what I'm going to be sharing with you is around chanda, because what I find is when I can skillfully engage in Dhamma chanda, in this passion, often I'll just notice the other three there. It's like I can begin to hear them play the music. And that's the key so often when I'm practicing with the four idipadas is really priming this passion and learning how to do that skillfully. And you'll hear, you know, as I go on, I will weave the other three in just so you get a little bit of a sense of that. But just to point out how foundational it really is to invite you to remember the story, how the story goes. The Buddha's journey, right? He begins leaving the palace gates of his home, setting off in that simple, austere life, the life of a renunciate, the life of a monastic. And when I slow down and start to see if I can sense into what that would be like to make such a drastic change in my life, I think, wow, that requires deep passion. That requires strong desire to make such a change. And not only to begin the journey, but to continue it and to fulfill it. And I share this not to kind of point out that there it is only in the Buddha, but to point out for all of you, there must be some chanda there. It's no small thing to take three months of your life and be on retreat or six weeks. And sometimes it can feel like, oh, it's really nothing. But really, to me, that's just an indication of how the devas carry us along when we're in love. And it's important to, to own that, to, to really acknowledge that, and to, to savor uh, the chanda that's there in your heart already to be on this retreat. This is why I love, I think I could probably speak for uh, all the teaching team. That's why it's so moving to be here together with you, because it's in the field here, this this love, this deep passion. This is what keeps the retreat cooking along. It's a rare thing to take three months or six weeks to be on retreat. It's a beautiful thing. So passion brings me to retreat and it also fuels retreat. Yet uh, what I've found is that for this passion to really work in a refined way, there's a skill to it. There's a real art to it, and that's what I want to also slow down with. Like in this, uh, this quote that's attributed to the French author um, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. He says, 
He says, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up the people to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. That's how you build the ship, to yearn. To yearn for something so vast and endless like the sea. That's part of retreat practice. Can you learn to yearn skillfully? To yearn for the vast and endless sea that calls to your particular heart, to your particular way of understanding the Dhamma and how it courses through your heart and your body, which is going to be different for each and every one of us. It's that skillful yearning that can really drive the engine of practice. And I want to acknowledge it it, it is, at least it's been for me, tricky. There's a whole art to landing passion, to landing inspiration in a skillful way. And it's because, coming back to one of the first things I said, is because it's close to craving, but different than craving. It's close to it. So how are they different? How is chanda... Dhammachanda, passion, different than grasping or craving. And I think the way to get clear about this is to first notice how they're the same. And then when we notice how they're the same, to notice how they're different. So how are they the same? In both, there is in both of them, there is a pull to something that's not here, but over there, right? I have a passion for something, and it's over there. It's not here. I crave something, and it's over there. It's not here. So they're similar in that way. There is a pull to over there. And I mean this both literally and metaphorically. And then how are they different? And I'm going to slow down with this because this is important. So passion, dhammachanda. I feel a pull to over there that opens up here. It opens up here-ness. There's a pull there, but it opens up here-ness. In craving, I also feel a pull to over there in a way that here disappears. Can you relate to that? The chocolate ice cream isn't here. And then I'm not here. (laughs) I don't know if you can have, I've never tried to have a passion for chocolate ice cream. That would be an interesting test, but that's a different, different talk. So I want to give a kind of an archetypal example of, of this. Passion. I have a passion for reaching the top of the mountains. 
And a sense of this is what gives each step of that journey meaning. It, it, there's a fullness there because each step with is intertwined with reaching the top of the mountain. So I'm really there for each step. There's a patience. There's a presence. There's a persistence of carefully stepping one after another. My heart's alive with getting to the top of the mountain, but that aliveness brings me here into the journey of each step. Whereas craving, I'm hiking up there and all I can think about is how I'm not there. And there's no more here-ness. And it tugs at me in a way that I find not so helpful. And I think it can be really interesting just to begin to notice how these feel different in your practice. Right? For me, craving, sometimes it's associated with some kind of tightening in my body as a result of reaching for something over there. It pulls me out of here. And oppositely, what what does it feel like to be passionate in a way that brings you into the present moment and over there that brings you here? How do you engage in that art of learning to yearn skillfully? So I want to give an example of this, one more general and then one closer to this path and this practice that we're doing. I remember uh, learning to play the piano in high school. It was... uh, and I loved it. <laughs> I had a passion for it. And, and it is true, I haven't played um, music, for that matter, uh, since my late teens, early 20s. So past life. And I was incredibly fortunate. I, I came across uh, and had the, the good fortune to, to have a, a wonderful, inspiring piano teacher. He was, uh, was incredible. And I remember him having me learn. He wanted me to learn this uh, piece for solo piano by uh, Francis Poulenc called, uh, uh, called uh, Trois Pies, uh, uh, the Three Pieces. And it was interesting that he assigned me it because I was a beginner pianist, really beginner. And this piece was way over my head. It was really a complex piano piece. And yet his kind of passion was contagious. And I was thrilled by it. And I learned so much from the process, even though I was so far from getting that piece of music down. And of course, he picked that intentionally for me as a beginning pianist. He wanted to give me a very particular lesson around this. What was the lesson? To learn how to be passionate rather than to crave. And it's true, I did have this passion to be over there, to play this piece of music, and it filled my passion for the process of learning how to play that piece of music. Just one bar and then the next bar. I could spend so much time on one bar of music. And I loved it.
And when I was too focused on the result, I hated it. (laughs) I felt like he was saying, you know, I want you to fall in love, Brian, with the process of music, with the process of practicing the piano instead of grasping for the outcome. And this, this is the, peach, the piece that's going to teach you to be passionate. You're going to learn how to be diligent and so, so soft with yourself and engaged. It's funny, when I share this with you, I can, I can feel my gratitude for him. It's uh, such a tender thing to carry him along in his heart and how it, it touched me in my, my Dhamma practice. So how about this happening in, in your practice? How does this work? How does this function? And I'll come back to the entire quartet. Don't worry. We'll get to the other three just a little bit here. So I don't know if you've had one of those days maybe on this retreat or another retreat, where your mind is just a lost in thought. You go to walking meditation, lost in thought. You get to the end of the lane, lost in thought. You come in here, you sit down, you feel like, okay, I'm going to sit down, meditate. You're lost in thought. In the dining hall, you're lost in thought. Outside, you're lost in thought. In your room, you're lost in thought. Have you ever had one of these days? Or am I just like, is this like the confessional where I'm the only one? Or <laughs> Thank you for humoring me. I don't feel as alone now, yeah. <laughs> right? There can be those days. And the game changer for me, this is a place to really bring in this practice, the practice of learning how to yearn skillfully, which is then going to mix in with these other idipadas. And so there's a game changer for me in the midst of this that can be really helpful. So I sit down to meditate, lost in thought, and if this dynamic is happening, the game changer for me is bringing in the sense of passion and the sense of one word. And that one word, what's that one word? Yes. It's like, bring it on. Like, I want to explore this challenge. Like, cool, like, this, this is my life lost in thought. Like, and here is my opportunity. I want to learn. I really want to learn this. Just as with that piano piece. I, I'm down for learning how to play this just bar by bar. I know this is a really difficult piece, but I really want to learn it. And, and sometimes that's all that's needed to get the idipadas going. That's really just a minute or two where I'm just priming my heart for, I really want to practice. And sometimes I'm connecting it with something bigger. It might be something that you wrote on that paper that's now up in the bowl on the altar. This is why we put these up here. This is the way I imagined it. 
so we can remember our chanda, our passion. And it might also be something more specific to the situation, so around thinking. Like, I I do, I really want to learn how to skillfully navigate this thinking mind where so much of my life I feel like I've just been the mere victim of it. And yeah, it's difficult, but I want to learn something different. I want to be in the world in a different way. I want to have a different relationship to this thinking mind. And I want that. So as you might be hearing, a place to bring in chanda is, uh, 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 is, is sometimes when you're feeling stuck in some way. And if you're going to play with this, I do invite you to play with it first with the small stuck things rather than the big one. <laughs> give, give, the, give the chanda a chance, you know, <laughs> with something small. And then what often comes is if that chanda lands... It's like, there's the quartet. It's so great. There they are. There's the energy. It's it's there. There's energy to practice. It's soft. It's tender. It's not grasping. But it's right there. The awareness is there. The mindfulness is eager to be there with you. And then the curiosity. Yeah, I'm going to check this out. The investigation. And sometimes I take something really specific around the last one. Let me play with, what's it like to step out mid-sentence of a thought? You ever try to do that? Even mid-word? Because often if you're like me, you, 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 know, you realize you're thinking, and it's like thinking, but I'm going to get to the end of the idea because it's a good one. You know? I've already almost won the argument with that person that I still feel resentful about, right? It's like, I got to get to the end. <laughs> what a cool thing to explore. Well, what's the emotion underneath this? Let me see if I can feel this for just a little while. Okay, like, I'm into, like, really connecting with this piece. How's the mind relating to thinking? So it can be really specific like that where I start to become curious. Just in those couple minutes before a sitting meditation or a walking meditation. I'm, I'm, I'm planting that. And then you might notice that the idipadas, they'll, they'll sprout in some way. And there's a whole range to this of, you know, just around the thinking mind. You know, how thinking arises and passes away. How it's impermanent. Right? How there's suffering when the mind is in contention with it. How... It's not me, it's just happening. These three ways of perceiving this these, that's situated around insight. It can be around cultivating samadhi. You know, Rebecca spoke about uh, samadhi last night. It can be cultivating some chanda around physical discomfort or around emotions. And I remember going through a phase of having a passion around just wanting to connect more deeply with this whole fluid flowing landscape of emotion that courses through this body. And so then it would be something specific. I'm just going to check in, see if I can check in again and again, not in any kind of like uh, tight way, but just this curiosity of what am I feeling right now emotionally? And then maybe in the next hour, what am I feeling right now? Just to 
connects on that level. And then that comes alive. There's the chanda. There's the energy for it. The mindfulness of emotions. And then the curiosity is intertwined there. So hopefully you're hearing how I'm uh, framing these idipadas is it's that time that probably some of you do this like I do. Do you ever find your mind like trying to coach yourself through this whole thing? Right? Come on, you can do it. Come on, just, just come on, let's do the walking meditation. Yeah, it's okay, it's okay, just relax. Relax, breathe. Breathe, it's okay. <laughs> it's just... I feel like I, I share all my craziness with all of you, so it's like, <laughs> God. But it's, it, it, there is a place for that. I think that's why I kind of whisper to myself, like, I really shouldn't be doing this, but I am. Like, I really need to coach myself through this. <laughs> but to me, this is where the idipadas come alive, where I'm pausing and I'm reflecting, what makes this retreat meaningful for me? And to, to connect with that again and again. And, and, and the words and the meaning might change. What is that for you? And allowing it to change. And sometimes I'm a voicing it to myself. I, I really want to find a deeper way of being in the world. I, I really want to learn how to love myself. And yeah, the, the piece of music is really difficult, and I want that. To learn to yearn skillfully. So there's, this ties into a common question that happens, you know, that comes around this, which is, um, the question is, is, well, if I cultivate and nurture this deep passion for the past path, is there a chance it will turn into craving? Because hopefully you're hearing how close that is. I'm saying this again. I want this. You know, is, it gonna, is, is that a possibility? And the answer is yes. Yeah, there's a really good chance. I even guarantee it. <laughs> yep, that's what happens. And it's probably going to be where you test this out. You're your own coach. You're at the beginning of your walking meditation kind of pathway. You have this sense of really, you know, this, I really want to be embodied. And then like that whole first lane, you're just lost in thought, right? And the mind gets bummed about that. The getting bummed is, a, is an indication that I was craving rather than passion. So is that going to happen? Yes. Well, will this at times lead to striving? Yeah, probably. Like, if, if you're going to learn to ride the bike of passion, you're going to get scraped up. You're going to fall off. It's just part of the journey. That's what comes with learning to ride a bike. I mean, for me as a kid, it was challenging to ride a bike. I think I, I can't pull up my leg, but I still think I have a scar there on my knee from crashing all the time. It was, just, it was just the way I learned.
It's the only way to learn how to skillfully be passionate on this path. There's only one way to learn how to yearn for the vast and endless sea, and, and that's you got to be on the bike. And yeah, you're, you're going to get scraped up. That's, that's, that's what it is to be on retreat. That's why we have these qualities of kindness and compassion. To tend to the scrapes and bruises, to tend to the wounds. And you know the interesting thing though, is the wounds eventually heal and form scars. Scars are so cool. Because they're a testimony, aren't they? They're a testimony to healing. I, I, I love those scars. They, they connect me even more deeply to this path and this practice. I was just speaking to a friend of mine. There's a friend of mine who, um, she grew up at the city of 10,000 Buddhas. It's a Chinese Mahayana monastery. And um, she was ordained there. And when you're ordained there, at the city of 10,000 Buddhas, it's different in different places. You, um, you take incense, and you, some of you have maybe seen this, you scar the head either three places, six places, nine places. But it's the city of 10,000 places, Buddha, so they did it 12 times, you know, these 12 scars. Right? This way that the body heals, this connection with the Dhamma. Jane Hirschfield speaks to scarring and connection. She has this poem from For What Binds Us. She says, there are names for what bind us. Strong forces, weak forces. Look around, you can see them. The skin that forms in a half-empty cup. Nails rusting into the places they join. Joints dovetailed on their own weight. The way things stay so solidly wherever they've been set down. And gravity, scientists say, is weak. That's where she really gets into this piece. And see how the flesh grows back across a wound with great vehemence, more strong than the simple, untested surface before. There's a name for it on horses when it comes back darker and raised, proud flesh as all flesh is proud of its wounds, wears them as honors given out after battle, small triumphs pinned to the chest. And when two people have loved each other, see how it is like a scar between their bodies, stronger, darker, and proud. How the black cord makes of them a single fabric that nothing can tear. 
maybe all practice is just about that, about making that scar between your body and the body of this path and practice. From all those wounds you learn to navigate, from the really subtle ones of the mind just flittering back and forth away from the breath to the big ones. It's like it's that scar that merges out of our broken places. It's the scar, that's the connection, the binding together how it makes of us and the Dharma into a single fabric that can't be torn. So may you contact this passion, the passion that makes the single fabric with the Dharma that can't be torn. And, and then you'll fall in love. Then you'll discover this deeper love. Maybe, maybe this is what it's all about. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. Sit just for uh, a minute here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.